You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty? Or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be? Or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story? Or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continued to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. No founding father, with the exception of maybe George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, is as well known across the country and the world as is Thomas Jefferson. In many ways, he is America. His life embodied so many of the values, philosophies, and complexities that have come to define this nation. This is perhaps the biggest reason we remain so fascinated with the great philosopher of freedom to this day. And there is plenty to be fascinated with. Few people in history have ever lived a life as full as his. From the time he was a young boy to his final breath, Jefferson never stopped learning, no matter the subject. Of course, his mind was frequently working out solutions to the latest political issue. However, when he wasn't thinking about that, he was devoted to learning language, music, culture, architecture, science, discovery, art, and so much more. Jefferson was born near modern-day Charlottesville, Virginia, on April 13, 1743. As he grew up, Virginia became not just his home, but his country and his true love. Today, many of us take immense pride in our nation. The states that we reside in are typically an afterthought for many. This was not the case in 18th century America. Thomas Jefferson considered Virginia to be his country that gave him pride, just as sovereign as the United States is today. He wasn't alone in that thinking either. Many of his colleagues' loyalty resided in their home state, not America. It was this commitment to localism that presented many challenges in the early republic, but also bestowed a great many blessings, both for themselves and for their posterity. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the harsh reality of life in the 18th century to seep in, even for families as wealthy as Jefferson's. Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter Jefferson, was a rather remarkable man in his own right. It was easy to see how young Thomas's ambition and interests developed with a father like Peter. 
The Jeffersons at the time, while well off, were by no means the wealthiest landowners in the colony. Although Peter's story wasn't exactly rags to riches tale, he wasn't given a silver spoon either. Much of his success was entirely self-made, including his education. Though he had little formal education, he never ceased to self-improve. Later, Thomas wrote that his father, quote, being of strong mind, sound judgment, and eager after information, he read much and improved himself. Yet another trait we can see translate to his son, who would later confess that he, quote, cannot live without books. After Peter's father died, who was also named Thomas Jefferson, he inherited much of his wealth and property. And in 18th century Virginia, to acquire property usually meant you acquired the slaves that came along with it. As the years went on, Peter not only became a successful businessman, but also a renowned surveyor and public servant. In 1750, the acting governor of Virginia commissioned him and Joshua Fry to officially map out the colony. The completion of this project became his initial claim to fame. Upon recalling his father's monumental accomplishment, Thomas Jefferson noted, that his father and Joshua Fry completed, quote, the first map of Virginia which had ever been made. As his local notoriety grew, Peter became an even more active member of his local and statewide communities. In the mid-1750s, he began serving in several public offices, up to even having a seat in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Unfortunately, his political career would not extend much beyond there. In the summer of 1757, Peter became ill and quickly deteriorated. Despite medical assistance, he was unable to recover, and Peter Jefferson died on August 17, 1757. The world was dark for a young Thomas Jefferson, having now experienced his first major tragedy in life. At merely 14 years of age, Thomas not only lost his father, but gained a tremendous amount of burden and responsibility. He now had inherited large properties that he would soon need to tend to. However, this also meant he inherited the slaves associated with that property, an issue he struggled to overcome throughout his life, as we shall soon see. Yet despite his father's untimely departure, Peter left an unmistakable impression on his then-teenaged son. We can see how Peter imprinted upon Thomas a love for learning, a greater sense of curiosity, and a desire to serve his local community, as well as his, quote, country. As he began to adjust to life without his father, his true brilliance began to shine through. As he entered into young adulthood, young Thomas traveled to Williamsburg, Virginia, to attend the College of William and Mary in March of 1760. During his time there, he studied philosophy and general liberal arts, where he truly began to develop his political ideology. After two years of a more broad, general education, he began to study the law under his mentor and soon-to-be fellow patriot, George Wythe. Jefferson considered Wythe to be his, quote, earliest and best friend, and credited him, quote, for first impressions which have had the most salutary influence on the course of my life. Over the next five years, Jefferson learned under Wythe and truly became a proponent 
of liberal society that we know him to be today. After receiving the formal education that his father never had, he quickly rose through the ranks of political society in Virginia. As he broke out from under With's shadow in 1767, then only 24 years old, he followed his mentor's footsteps and became an attorney. A mere two years later, he was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses, just as his father was. He must have thought that if he were still alive, it would be a moment of immense pride for Peter Jefferson. But whereas Peter Jefferson's political career more or less culminated in the House of Burgesses, Thomas Jefferson's was only just beginning. He served in the legislative body for six years until 1775. He gained a reputation for being stoic in manner, yet absolutely lethal with a pen. It was during this time that he had truly demonstrated what he was capable of. The story of Thomas Jefferson's rise to notoriety parallels that of America's. Several events that led to American independence occurred simultaneously with Jefferson's time as a legislator. In Massachusetts, the Boston Massacre set the colony into a frenzy in March 1770. Later, the Sons of Liberty carried out the Boston Tea Party, disguised as Indians, in December of 1773. Although the fiery passion of liberty was perhaps hottest in Massachusetts at the time, it was quickly spreading to all the colonies. In 1774, some soon-to-be founders were quick to disavow the Tea Party in Boston as an act of vandalism, not Thomas Jefferson. The discussion surrounding the Boston Tea Party presented Thomas with an opportunity that would make him known as a patriot, if not a radical, on both sides of the Atlantic. He penned arguably his greatest work prior to the Declaration of Independence, known as A Summary View of the Rights of British Americans. In it, he defended the actions of the Sons of Liberty and scolded the British government for their oppression of the colonies. He wrote that, quote, a number of them assembled in the town of Boston, threw the tea into the ocean, and dispersed without doing any other act of violence. If in this they did wrong, they were known and were amenable to the laws of the land, against which it could not be objected that they had ever, in any instance, been obstructed or diverted from their regular course in favor of popular offenders. They should therefore not have been distrusted on this occasion. As he continued, he boldly declared that, quote, These are acts of power assumed by a body of men foreign to our constitutions and unacknowledged by our laws against which we do, on behalf of the inhabitants of British America, enter this our solemn and determined protest. And we do earnestly entreat His Majesty, as yet the only mediatory power between the several states of the British Empire, to recommend to his Parliament of Great Britain the total revocation of these acts, which, however nugatory they may be, may yet prove the cause of further discontents and jealousies among us. Finally, as he summarized in closing, Thomas Jefferson asked the king to put an end to these acts of oppression, which is further alienating his colonial subjects. As he proceeded, he said that, quote, these are our grievances which we have thus laid before his majesty. With that freedom of language and sentiment, which becomes a free people claiming their rights as derived from the laws of nature, not as a gift of their chief magistrate, he begged the king to, quote, let no act be passed by any one legislature 
which may infringe on the rights and liberties of another. This is the important post in which fortune has placed you holding the balance of a great, if a well-poised empire. Looking back today, this was clearly his warm-up act to the summer of 1776. Yet rather than declare independence, Jefferson and America as a whole sought peaceful methods to put an end to British oppression. It's easy to forget, but the founders were British citizens and weren't eager to separate themselves from His Majesty's empire if they could help it. Still, Jefferson was clear in his purpose. The British government had no right to govern the American colonies and impose taxes when they denied the colonists proper representation. He had done his part to sow the seeds of separation. Furthermore, he solidified his reputation as one of the greatest penmans in the American colonies. His summary view was submitted to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia for debate and approval in the fall of 1774, before being sent to the king. It was approved, but Congress watered it down from Jefferson's original version, out of fear of appearing too radical. Nonetheless, Friends of Jefferson printed and distributed his original summary view in pamphlet form. It was widely read in America as well as London, making no mistakes as to Jefferson's intentions, regardless of whether Congress shared his sentiments. In 1775, Thomas Jefferson went from being elected to the House of Burgesses to being elected to the Second Continental Congress. His reputation preceded him after his work on summary view. Yet, what many likely didn't expect at this Congress was that his mannerisms didn't change. Throughout his time in Philadelphia, he sat back, listened, and observed. He joined Virginia's delegation, which included the likes of the famed Richard Henry Lee, Jefferson's mentor, George Wythe, and, for a time, George Washington, until Congress voted to name him Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. Additionally, it would be here that Jefferson met and budded long-lasting friendships with many of his fellow founders, including the likes of John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. Adams unlike Jefferson, took every opportunity to rise and speak to the cause of independence. Despite his combative nature, Jefferson grew to respect and admire his colleague from Massachusetts. By this point, the shot heard round the world had already been fired in Lexington and Concord. The revolution was well underway, and the question the Congress had to address was whether to make peace with Great Britain or to separate entirely. Despite some, such as John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, wishing to exhaust all avenues before coming to terms with independence, the writing was clearly on the wall. Although independence had not yet been adopted, the Congress approved a committee of five to draft a declaration in the event that it was. This committee began operation on June 11, 1776, and consisted of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert Livingston of New York. Despite the Declaration of Independence being arguably his most proud accomplishment, he was initially very hesitant to write it. Jefferson was initially included in this committee mostly due to his impeccable writing ability and understanding of the fundamental principles why America must be free 
of British tyranny. John Adams would note later in life that, quote, though a silent member in Congress, Jefferson was so prompt, frank, explicit, and decisive upon committees, not even Sam Adams was more so, that he soon seized upon my heart, and upon this occasion I gave him my vote and did all in my power to procure the votes of others. Yet when the time came to decide who was to author the declaration, it would appear he got cold feet. Perhaps the weight of the importance of such a document quickly sat in, giving him self-doubts about living up to it. Such a declaration would not just alter the course of the American colonies or even Great Britain. It would make the dawn of a new age. Countries of old were founded based on conquest and royalty and tradition. America would be the first country truly conceived in the principle of liberty. Surely, that knowledge would be enough to make any man second-guess himself. It was, in fact, John Adams who convinced Jefferson that he should be the primary author. In August 1822, Adams wrote to Timothy Pickering, as he recalled the events leading up to independence. He wrote that Jefferson proposed to him that he should write the draft. Adams declined and suggested to Jefferson that it should be his duty. Oh no, said Jefferson, why will you not? You ought to do it. The two then went into a short back and forth. I will not, declared Adams. Why? Jefferson inquired. Reasons enough. What can be your reasons? Finally, Adams caved to Jefferson's insistence on a suitable answer and said, quote, reason first, you're a Virginian, and Virginia ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second, I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much the otherwise. Reason third, you can write ten times better than I can. Well, said Jefferson, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. Adams, delighted in his agreement, informed him that as soon as Jefferson completed a draft, the committee would meet to review it. The committee received it, once Jefferson was complete, and, as Adams suspected, they were completely blown away. Adams would later admit that had he in fact written the document, he would have made some minor changes, as he deemed appropriate, and suspected that Congress would not adopt the document without some modifications of their own. But he was not going to interfere with the crowning achievement of Thomas Jefferson. Aside from some minor adjustments, the Committee of Five were eager to approve Jefferson's writing. Adams also reflected later that he held some initial concern that the language was perhaps bolder than what he was comfortable with, such as referring to King George III as a tyrant. But then again, if there was any moment to be bold and indecisive in language, would it not be here? They were no longer trying to salvage the old world, but build a new one. As Patrick Henry declared a year earlier, if this be treason, make the most of it. As Adams predicted, Congress did indeed have some initial edits for Thomas to make, as they did with his summary view a few years earlier. Yet, there was a surprising amount that they kept. 
It was apparent that they were all but decided on their next course of action. For independence to pass, there could be no nay votes. The opposition to independence by this point was a small but very vocal minority, and they could derail the entire thing. As June turned into July in 1776, it was the 11th hour. On July 1st, Congress held an unofficial vote to see where everyone stood. At this point, only nine states supported the resolution, not enough to pass. South Carolina and Pennsylvania were nays. Delaware couldn't decide, and New York abstained from voting. Some backroom dealings were required to ensure a smooth passage. On July 2, 1776, it was time to hold the official vote. After a nail-biting count, New York abstained, citing a lack of instruction from their state assembly. But abstaining is not a nay. The motion carried. The deed was done. America was a new and independent nation. After some final revisions, Congress finally approved Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence two days later, on July 4th. 1776. The next day, it was time to announce to the world just what had happened, and allow the public to hear and read Jefferson's immortal words for the first time. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. With that, Jefferson's legacy had been immortalized. This wasn't merely some airing of grievances, although there were plenty of those. Jefferson had created an American treatise, a manifesto of liberty. His words single-handedly rooted a nation for the first time in human history in a foundation of freedom and liberation, a foundation that would thenceforth govern the approach of the affairs of said nation to this very day. No longer would liberty be looked at as a privilege that a king or national ruler may use as a bargaining ship to bestow upon their subjects. From here on out, liberty would be seen as the default. Jefferson here revealed the true nature of liberty. It is an unalienable right. Of every person. With that, Thomas Jefferson considered his job well done. There wasn't much more he could do in the Continental Congress now that independence had been declared. He might as well have been the one to declare it himself. In the fall, Jefferson stepped down from his position in Congress and returned to Virginia politics, where he believed he could do more good. The House of Burgesses was a British legislative body in America was no longer British. Virginia replaced it with the House of Delegates, and that was where Jefferson took his next steps. 
Throughout the revolution, as other founders were physically fighting in the war, Jefferson was fighting for the soul of America to ensure that it was worth risking life and limb over. From 1776 to 1779, he served in the House of Delegates and began to institutionalize much of his vision for Virginia and America as a whole. Believing fiercely in the right to freedom of conscience, the notion of state-endorsed and enforced religion repulsed Mr. Jefferson. He didn't consider himself the enemy of religion itself, but rather the enemy of any enforcement over the mind of men. He viewed faith as a personal matter between the individual and their God, not something that can or should be legislated. Indeed, he even argued voluntary faith being fundamental to the teachings of Christ and of Christian theology at large. With that in mind, he began to work on the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. This was a bill that would ensure all Virginians had the freedom to worship as they saw fit. In the bill, as drafted by Thomas Jefferson, it guaranteed that, quote, no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burthened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinion or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities." Unfortunately, Jefferson was no longer a member of the House of Delegates whenever it finally passed in 1786, but his ally, James Madison, ensured it would not fall by the wayside. The bill officially codified religious liberty in the state of Virginia and served as an inspiration for the template for the First Amendment to the Constitution just a few years later. After serving three years in the House of Delegates, he became Virginia's second governor in 1779. Unfortunately, circumstances during his time as governor couldn't have been worse. The War for Independence was at a low point, and succeeding the immensely popular Patrick Henry was difficult to live up to. The British had all but conquered the state, and many of the political leaders in the state had to flee. Indeed, even Jefferson himself narrowly escaped capture at Monticello at the hands of the ruthless British officer, bloody Colonel Bain Tarleton. Although many of the circumstances were outside of his control, his popularity reached an all-time low, and he only served as governor for two years. After reverting back to Monticello for the final couple of years of the Revolution, tragedy again struck. Martha Jefferson his dear wife, passed away in 1782. This only compounded Jefferson's melancholy, as five out of his seven children with Martha never made it to adulthood. In fact, Martha's last child died just four months before she did. Thomas loved Martha dearly and was engulfed with immense grief when she died. As he attempted to overcome his depression, he again served for a short stint in Congress and then succeeded Benjamin Franklin as ambassador to France in 1785. 
Although he was unable to attend the Constitutional Convention in 1787, Jefferson ensured to be in the loop with the proceedings and offered his insights to his friend James Madison after its passage as to how it could be amended and improved, including a Bill of Rights. After he returned to the United States in 1787, he accepted a cabinet position in President Washington's administration as Secretary of State. However, the political lever-pulling of his rival and Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, made it impossible for him to continue in his service in the administration. He resigned in 1793 and ran for president himself in 1796. He came in second place to his friend John Adams, and thus became the nation's second vice president. However, many of the issues he had with the Washington administration, namely Hamilton and his men, largely carried over into the Adams administration. Because of this, he reverted back to his role as president of the Senate and leader of the Democratic Republicans. His political differences with Adams made it impossible for him to advance his administration's policies. It also drove a deep division between the two fathers of independence that would not recover for nearly two decades. After an incredibly tight and ugly race for the White House in 1800, Jefferson finally emerged victorious and served as president for the following eight years. After stepping down from office in 1809, Thomas Jefferson finally retired and lived out the remainder of his life at Monticello. Perhaps only George Washington left a legacy greater than that of Thomas Jefferson's from the founding era. Not only was his presidential administration one of the most consequential in history, his philosophy largely became America's soul. It is largely his words and ideas that we strive to live up to. Of course, the battle between big government and limited self-government rages on today. But the fact that liberty even has a seat at the table of political discussions is a testament to the longevity of his philosophy. Despite all of this, Jefferson remains one of the most divisive figures in history. This is largely rooted in his perceived relationship with one very specific issue, slavery. It is no secret that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, a lot of them throughout his life. With the early death of his father, Thomas acquired about 60 slaves in addition to the land Peter left for him in his will. Between the natural growth of families and acquisition of more land, this number grew over time. Most reasonable people cannot fault a young teenager in the 18th century who inherited slaves as making a personal character misstep. However, any good graces he may have received for being a child with his hands tied no longer exists after Jefferson became an adult. Surely, if he truly believed in 
liberty. He would have freed his slaves long before writing the Declaration of Independence. After all, how can the same man who wrote, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, say such a thing as he himself owns slaves? Did he only mean white men? Wouldn't this make him a hypocrite? This is thus the popular narrative of the day, that Thomas Jefferson was an American sphinx, someone who championed certain values and ideas only to betray those very values and ideas in his own personal life. Yet the truth is far less simplistic than this. It's true that there was a certain contradiction in many aspects of his life that he was, in fact, aware of and had to live with. Many external factors and internal conflicts contributed to this contradiction. However, one thing is certain. The notion that Thomas Jefferson did not believe that all men possess equal rights when he wrote about it in 1776 is just flat out wrong. In fact, Jefferson was arguably the most vocal and highest profile Virginian, if not Southerner, to advocate for abolition at the time. Furthermore, if he had it his way, a firm stance against the institution of slavery would have been embedded into our earliest founding documents from the beginning. It should be noted that the fact that the institution of slavery was being questioned at all in the late 1700s was a sign of America's revolutionary ideas taking root. For much of the colony's brief history before this, Nobody questioned the morality of slavery. It was just the way things were. There have always been slaves in the world, so why should it matter now? As the Enlightenment ideas began to take root in America, the public's attitude toward slavery began to shift. For those born in the mid-1700s, it didn't matter as much that it has traditionally existed if it is morally abhorrent. This was thus the position Thomas Jefferson found himself in, being born into a world where enslavement was the norm, but seeking to build a world where it is unthinkable. The only question was how to do this. In the industrial north, it would be easy to see the institution uprooted since, well, there weren't many slaves to begin with and plenty of opportunities to employ them in honest labor once they were free. The South was much more tricky. Southern society was ingrained in not just slavery, but deep prejudices. Convincing the public to end it would not be so simple. Jefferson quickly began to understand the complexities that would be involved to abolish slavery. Nonetheless, if he couldn't uproot the whole system overnight, he could at least begin to make the moral and philosophical arguments for an eventual abolition. He was moving the Overton window. His first large-scale opportunity to do this came as he wrote a summary view of the rights of British Americans. In the final version approved by Congress, it was a pretty radical statement, not only to defend the Boston Tea Party, but to assert that Great Britain had no right to oppress the colonies as it had. However, Jefferson's original draft took it a step further, detailing what can only be described as an absolute condemnation of slavery inflicted on the colonies by Great Britain. He wrote, quote, 
The abolition of domestic slavery is the great object of desire in those colonies, where it was unhappily introduced in their infant state. But previous to the enfranchisement of the slaves we have, it is necessary to exclude all further importations from Africa. Yet our repeated attempts to effect this by prohibitions and by imposing duties which might amount to a prohibition have been hitherto defeated by His Majesty's negative. Thus preferring the immediate advantages of a few African corsairs to the lasting interests of the American states and to the rights of human nature deeply wounded by this infamous practice. This was one of the earliest examples of the brilliance of Jefferson's writing abilities. He condemned slavery as a violation to the rights of human nature. Then he condemns King George III for violating the rights of the colonies to govern themselves on the matter. In one fell swoop, he argues both against slavery and in favor of what would be known as federalism. You see, Many colonies, including Virginia, have been trying to impose limitations on the slave trade, if not abolish it outright, only to be met with the veto of the king. Jefferson viewed this as a form of oppression toward both the enslaved Africans and the American colonies. Of course, Congress admitted the condemnation so that southern colonies didn't take offense. Regardless, his original draft was published anyway, and the world knew where he stood. However, his greatest standoff against the institution would be, at the same time, his greatest achievement. In the summer of 1776, after John Adams finally convinced Jefferson to author the Declaration of Independence, one section stood out above the rest. Adams recounted years later that, quote, I was delighted with its high tone and the flights of oratory with which it abounded especially that concerning Negro slavery, which though I knew his Southern brethren would never suffer to pass in Congress, I certainly never would oppose. What was Adams talking about here? There was certainly no mention of slavery in the Declaration of Independence as approved on July 4, 1776. Yet if we look at Thomas Jefferson's original draft, slavery is not only mentioned, it is the most bold and provocative section of the document. As the committee reviewed the first draft after Jefferson completed it in mid-June, their eyes particularly drifted toward this specific section. Quote, He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in the transportation thither. This particular warfare is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise up in arms among us and to purchase that liberty which he has deprived them 
by murdering the people upon whom he has abjured them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with the crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Every word he chose to include in this draft was carefully selected for good reason. His condemnation of slavery here was not merely used in order to scold the king. He was embedding the foundation of America with anti-slavery sentiments in hopes that we may one day find a way to end this dreadful practice. This isn't the kind of language someone would use if they didn't truly believe that all men were indeed created equal. Upon a closer look, there are only two words that he writes in all caps. As Jefferson wrote, This is the welfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open the market where men should be bought and sold. Both the words Christian and men are emphasized here. The former is done in a bit of mockery, implying the contradiction between the Christian faith and supporting slavery. The latter is to suggest that African slaves weren't some subhuman creatures made to serve white people. Rather, they were human beings, the same as Thomas Jefferson and the same as King George III. Jefferson here wasn't just writing to the king or to his peers. He was writing to posterity. As he penned America's mission statement, he sought to ensure emancipation as part of that mission. However, much like with a summary view, the Southern delegation would stand as his greatest roadblock in this endeavor. States like Georgia and South Carolina profited greatly from the slave trade and didn't exactly agree with Jefferson's notion of slaves having sacred rights of life and liberty. Even if everyone at the Second Continental Congress could get on board with it, many of their constituents couldn't. At least, not at this time. Thus, after independence had been approved, a two-day battle commenced over what will be in the final version of the Declaration. Unfortunately, it was a battle that Jefferson could not win. If slavery was to ever be dealt with, the founders had to compartmentalize. Independence had to happen first, then they could address emancipation. As Jefferson recalled decades later, quote, the cause reprobating the enslaving the inhabitants of Africa was struck out in compliance to South Carolina and Georgia, who had never attempted to restrain the importation of slaves, and who, on the contrary, still wished to continue it. Our northern brethren also, I believe, felt a little tender under these censures. For though their people have very few slaves themselves, yet they had plenty considerable carriers of them to others. Nonetheless, he wasn't prepared to give up the fight. In 1778, as he returned to the Virginia legislature, he finally scored a win on the issue. A bill passed which banned the importation of slaves. Some historians dispute the idea that Jefferson himself authored the bill, and it isn't entirely sure how much of a role he played, but the suspicions don't detract from the greater point here. No matter how much of a role he truly played, it is clear that Jefferson wanted his name attached to it. He would later brag about his role in this bill that, quote, stopped the increase of the evil of slavery by importation, leaving to future efforts its final eradication.
This was by no means a popular political position to take. Jefferson wasn't merely riding the waves of a movement that had already gained public support. He wanted people to know that regardless of popular opinion, in the South of all places, he would not bend on this issue. Additionally, he became known for assisting or giving advice on bills that he had no official role in, and at minimum, this is likely what occurred here. In 1784, as he was returning to public life after the death of his wife, he took another enormous consequential step in pursuit of abolition. He proposed a bill that would ban slavery from being permitted in the newly acquired Northwest Territory. His plan was largely adopted, except the provision on slavery, which was defeated by a single vote. The razor-thin margin in which his slavery ban was defeated deeply troubled him, saying, quote, The voice of a single individual would have prevented this abominable crime from spreading itself over the new country. Thus, we see the fate of millions unborn hanging on the tongue of one man, and heaven was silent in that awful moment. Fortunately for him, this was a time of great volatility and change for the new nation. In 1787, despite Jefferson now serving as ambassador to France, a new ordinance was adopted, this time including his much-desired prohibition on slavery from the Ohio River northward. He may have failed to include a stance against slavery in America's founding document, but it was certainly a part of America's revolutionary spirit as a new abolition movement quickly began to grow. Over the next few decades, he became more silent on the issue. Once he returned to France, his time was continually consumed with domestic politics. From his time in the Washington administration, the Adams administration, and eventually his own, a growing number of issues pulled his attention away from it. This included battling Hamilton's National Bank, opposing the Alien and Sedition Acts, and culminated in all the responsibilities that came with becoming commander-in-chief himself. The growing demands of an infant nation made him realize that perhaps the responsibility of emancipation would have to fall on another generation. However, he would ensure to make one final act toward that cause before retiring entirely from public life. In 1706, during President Thomas Jefferson's State of the Union address, he urged Congress to pass a bill banning the importation of slaves. In 1807, Congress did just that, and passed a bill that would prohibit, quote, the importation of slaves into any port or place within the jurisdiction of the United States, from any foreign kingdom, place, or country. Thomas promptly signed the bill, making this the biggest step the federal government had ever taken against slavery up until that point. Of course, this wasn't a total fix. Many ships would continue to import slaves into America illegally through the Gulf well after the bill went into effect. Still, this major step set an important precedent that would eventually lead to emancipation 60 years later. All that being said, it sort of begs the question, if he was so adamant about ending slavery, why didn't he simply free his own slaves? Doesn't this demonstrate that he lacked the courage to practice what he preached? Well, not necessarily. Fortunately, today, we have the benefit of hindsight. We don't deal with the issue of slavery anymore, and it was probably resolved in the best way that it could with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. 
However, historical context is often missing when we look back at this issue. Today, we look at the issue of slavery in pretty absolute terms. That's because morally, we should look at it that way. An institution that allows one man to own another is evil and morally bankrupt. There is no other way to view it. Thomas Jefferson knew as much in his day. However, the solution to atone for this great national sin was far less simple. Many slave owners, like Thomas Jefferson, who believed entirely in emancipation, faced challenges, both externally and internally, that prevented them, in one way or another, from practicing what they preached. The first issue was a matter of legality. The laws in the early days of colonial Virginia sought to institutionalize slavery into Southern life, regardless of the wishes of any given slave owner. A series of slave codes passed in Virginia from the 1660s to 1705 saw to it that slave owners were encouraged to abuse their authority and discouraged any well-meaning slave owner from setting their slaves free. In fact, it wasn't until 1782 when Virginia reevaluated all of their laws after independence that slave owners could even legally free their slaves without government permission. Many of the laws codified included the prohibition of interracial marriage or procreation. Slave owners were permitted to kill their slaves without it being considered a felony. Black indentured servants were reclassified as slaves, condemning them to a life in chains no matter how close they were to the end of their servitude. White people were not allowed to be employed by free black people. Even after the 1782 Act reforming many of these laws, many loopholes were still left for the state to exploit. For instance, if the slaves being freed were, quote, not being in the judgment of the court, of sound mind or body, or being above the age of 45 years, or being male under the age of 21, or females under the age of 18, shall respectively be supported and maintained by the person so liberating them. In other words, if the slaves weren't a certain age, or a court simply didn't want them to be liberated, they could force the slave owners to financially care for them indefinitely. This was a clever deterrent, as many of those in higher society in Virginia who might be inclined to free their slaves were what's known as land-rich but cash-poor. Those who weren't deeply in debt, as Jefferson was, still weren't turning much of a profit if they proceeded to free their slaves without giving them the support. Quote, the court of the county, which such neglect or refusal may be, is hereby empowered and required upon application to them made to order the sheriff, to distrain and sell so much of the person's estate as shall be sufficient for that purpose. Still, Jefferson committed treason by authoring and signing the Declaration of Independence. Why couldn't he break the law here, if ever discreetly, in order to liberate his slaves? That brings up the second issue he faced, which was a more moral conundrum. Because of the laws concerning black people in the time, emancipation hardly meant true freedom. Black people who were freed still didn't have hardly any rights in the eyes of the law. They were barred from owning firearms or any weapon. If any white person accused a black person of being a runaway slave, only the white person's word 
would be considered in a court of law. This meant the threat of being arrested and sold back into slavery, or worse, loomed over the heads just because they were black. All it took was to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, and any freedom gained would immediately be lost. Then there was the issue of poverty. Any freed black person was usually illiterate and didn't have any skills other than tending to fields. In the agricultural South, there were very little opportunities to learn a trade or to join an apprenticeship, unlike in the North. This meant that the threat of starvation would loom over the heads of most people freed, leading many to still or kill in order to eat. On top of all of that, perhaps the greatest threat was the prejudice of white men in the back hills of Virginia. Since many aspects of the laws enabled these people, they would often take the law into their own hands with little to no repercussions. A group of racist white folks could do unspeakable things to any unfortunate freed man that happened to cross their path. All of these circumstances forced founders like Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves, to answer an impossible question. Is it more morally just to free my slaves and subjugate them to a cruel and unrelenting society that is designed to oppress them, free or not? Or do I make sure they are treated well under my care, despite it meaning that I maintain slavery in my private life? Many chose the latter, and in the meantime fought to eradicate evils of slavery along with these unjust laws from society. Still, many of the avenues they took turned out to be a double-edged sword. Take the banning of the slave trade, for instance. On one hand, it brought the end of slavery in the United States that much closer to a reality. Yet, this was a measure supported by many who wanted to keep slavery as well. From their perspective, black people would soon outnumber white people if the slave trade continued. Ending it would make it easier to oppress the slaves already in America and eliminate any threat of a slave rebellion. Slavery was so ingrained into society for so long that ending it was never going to be easy. So many layers of injustice needed to be addressed that it would take decades to completely make amends. Nonetheless, America's founding values that Jefferson helped plant ensured that one day this great national sin would be no more. Thomas Jefferson was indeed a complex man who struggled with his own contradictions. This was not, however, due to a lack of effort to resolve these issues. Like the rest of us, he possessed many flaws. But despite these flaws, he continually worked to build a better world, both for himself and for posterity. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for this inaugural episode of Profiles in Liberty on the We Are Libertarians podcasting network. I hope you enjoyed it. This is something that I have been very excited to bring to you. We wanted to kick things off with, uh, with a splash, talking about uh, some, some light topics on Thomas Jefferson and uh, his relationship with slavery. And I hope that in doing so, 
you not only learn some some history but also uh, some some new context in how to look at that history and and how to look at that time period next week we are going to be going over John Adams and his relationship with mob tyranny it's going to be a great episode and I cannot wait for you to listen to each of these episodes throughout season one on the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Some of these people are some of my personal heroes, and I hope that throughout the course of this show, uh, they can become some of yours as well. Please be sure to subscribe to this program on wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz, and also uh, subscribe to my newsletter, if you will, the Profiles in Liberty newsletter on Substack. I put out content every other week, and uh, that is going to be some content, some stories that may not necessarily fit in the show, but I think are great stories nonetheless to tell, as well as some updates and information about the trajectory of the show and so on and so forth, and it's uh, it's great content to keep, especially in between seasons as we go forward here, so please be sure to subscribe there as well, and subscribe to the We Are Libertarians uh, network on Twitter at we are the letter R, Libertarians. Until next week, uh, this has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty. <laughs>